This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Namaskar and hello. This is Nina Rao of Be Here Now Network podcast, coming to you from Brooklyn, where we've just emerged from heavy rains, causing much damage and disruption. More recently in other U.S. cities and around the world, there have been serious injuries and deaths. This type of flooding used to happen once in a thousand years and now feels like we hear about a thousand natural disasters every year on our mother, planet Earth. In addition to redirecting the practicalities of our lives in this new climate reality, we also recognize we're living with what is now called eco-anxiety and climate distress. And for this, we need a spiritual sanctuary within ourselves and in community. On the heels of Climate Week in New York City, which coincided with the UN General Assembly last month, September 2023, where thousands of people protested climate change, I'm honored to have spoken with Dekila Tungyalpa, Director of the LOCA Initiative and Environment and Climate Education and Outreach Platform for Faith Leaders. I'm joined by Allegra Lovejoy, a multi-faith chaplain and writer on spirituality and the environment. For more information about Dekila and her work integrating faith and ecology, please visit centerhealthyminds.org. And you know where to find me, ninaraochant.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Nature and the Name with Nina Rao on the Be Here Now Network podcast. I am really happy to be here with these two lovely beings. Um, I will have Allegra Lovejoy interviewing with me today because of her interest in what we'll be discussing today. And our honored guest is Dekila Chungyalpa. I first met her online during COVID, like I met so many people she didn't know, but she was uh, speaking along with um, Roshi Joan Halifax, who I also love. And I know that she has spent a lot of time with her talking about these subjects and various other things. So welcome, Dekila. Thank you so much, Nina. I'm so happy to be here and to have this space with you and Allegra. Yes. And Allegra happens to be my neighbor. She lives just around the corner and we almost bumped into each other and discovered that we live <laughs> two streets away from each other. Um, 
I also saw Allegra some time ago on, um, I don't know who you were interviewing, and I was very taken by this young person um, who likes to discuss, as I do, uh, the intersection of spirituality and our environment, um, and which is why I've invited her to be here with me. Hi, Allegra. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. So I'll just tell you a little bit about um, Allegra and also Dekila, and then we'll go into our conversation. Um, Dek Allegra has, is a Brooklyn native and a practitioner of contemplative arts. She has worked in land conservation and environmental education and holds a Master's of Divinity from Yale Divinity School and a Master of Environmental Management from Yale School of the Environment. Allegra writes and teaches on ecology and contemplative practice. And beloved Dekila is uh, so accomplished. So it's going to take me a few minutes to just go through everything and she can blush at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Dekila Chungyalpa is the director of the LOCA initiative, which is something that I will ask her to speak about later a new environmental and climate education and outreach platform for faith leaders at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Its mission is to support faith-led environmental and climate action efforts locally and around the world through collaborations on project design and management, capacity building, training, and public outreach. Prior to that, Dekila was awarded the prestigious McCluskey Fellowship at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, where she researched, lectured, and led fieldwork with graduate students. From 2009 to 2014, Dekila founded and ran the World Wildlife Fund's Sacred Earth Program, building partnerships with faith leaders and religious institutions toward concrete conservation results in the Amazon, East Africa, Eastern Himalayas, Mekong, and the United States. So you can see why I would love to speak with her. All of you know my interest in my conservation efforts uh, with tigers in India and everywhere I go. And here I meet this lovely woman who's <laughs> taken this work internationally. Just to give you some background of where Dekila is from, she's originally from Sikkim, a small Himalayan state in India, and she speaks many languages, including Sikkimese, Tibetan, Hindi, Nepali, and English. She is the daughter of Ani Dechen Dangmo, a Tibetan Buddhist nun and meditation teacher who left us in 1997. Having seen the impact of hydropower dams and deforestation firsthand while growing up in Sikkim, Dekila became an environmentalist at a young age. She worked extensively on community-based conservation in the Himalayas and the development of regional climate change adaptation strategies and sustainable solutions for hydropower in the Mekong River Basin. She helped establish Koryub in 2008, an eco-monastic association under the auspices of His Holiness, the 17th Karmapa, head of the Karmakagyu 
School of Tibetan Buddhism and coordinates over 50 monasteries and nunneries in the Himalayas that are carrying out reforestation, climate preparedness, disaster management, and freshwater projects. She has also written a number of papers and books, which we will direct you to um, at the end of the podcast. So I just wanted to give you some background of why I'm so excited to speak with Dekila. Um, I'm going to ask Allegra actually to just, um, I learned a new word, uh, Dekila, when you started, the, when you held your recent summit, which mm-hmm. was um, something I'd never heard before and probably just I'm not literate enough, but Anthropocene. I had never heard this word before, and and it's actually perfect because I never knew there was a word for it. So I'm going to ask Allegra to tell us what that is, and also to just just so that everyone is on the same page. What is global warming, and what is the climate crisis? I know it's they're simple things, but sometimes it's good to get that clear. Sure, Nina, I'd be happy to do that, and I think it's actually a really great question to start with because the vocabulary of global warming has changed so much over the years. And you know, what do these terms mean? What are they referring to? Um, is really great to check in about because you know the science keeps evolving, and we want to you know make sure we're on the same page as we get started. Um, so I put together a few notes to refer to, um, starting off with what is global warming. Um, as, as we may remember, since the Industrial Revolution, which is the when we first started being able to accurately measure global temperatures, the global annual temperature has increased by um, more than one degree Celsius or about two degrees Fahrenheit. Um, for the first hundred years of that era, since 1880, temperatures rose about 0.1 degree every 10 years. But since 1980, it's more than doubled. That means our planet has never been hotter in the last um, five years have in the last have been the hottest five years on record. And where did this come from? How did this happen? This is due to the greenhouse gas effect emissions from burning fossil fuels. That is primarily coal, oil and gas in our power plants, industrial facilities and vehicles, as well as emissions from animal agriculture and other agricultural practices. So these increase the quantity of carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere. These potent greenhouse gases trap solar radiation and increase the warmth that's stored within our atmosphere that produces global warming. And while our forests and wetlands and oceans naturally absorb some amount of carbon dioxide, even the most ambitious tree planting campaigns and wetland restoration campaigns can't capture enough carbon dioxide to stave off severe global climate change. So we need both nature-based solutions and major reductions in emissions. So that means the ways we source energy, how much energy we generate and consume, how much stuff we generate and consume, how we grow food and how we travel. So global warming, greenhouse gas effect, climate change. Climate change describes the ways our climate is changing as a result of global warming. So longer, hotter, and drier summers, more intense weather events. We just had a 141-year record rainfall right here in New York City. 
um, increased droughts and fires in some parts of the world and increased precipitation in others. So changes to oceanic and atmospheric currents and migration of plant and animal species. And there's even a, a new term, climate migrants and climate refugees, to describe the ways that people are forced out of their homes due to extreme weather events or agricultural fa failures driven by climate change. Lastly, the Anthropocene, coming back to where you started, Nina, the Anthropocene is a new term that describes all the ways our species is impacting planet Earth. Anthropocene refers to humans, anthropocentric. And climate change, as well as the massive physical impacts we have as humans through our cities, roads, agriculture, and ecosystem alterations of different kinds. So previously, this era was called the Holocene by geologists, but now some geologists and philosophers propose calling it the Anthropocene to describe the massive physical alterations our species has created on the Earth. So those are our four terms, global warming, climate change, Anthropocene, and our climate migrants and refugees. Great, thank you. And that's, sure. Anthropocene kind of refers to a time period of about 100, 150 years? Yeah, more like 400. More 400 like years. Yeah, very uh -huh. much including colonialism and including yes. sort of the first wave of transformation that happened with colonialism, right? In including in this continent, in the Americas. Understood. Yeah. Okay. So just to the reason why this is really, um, I think it's important we talk about this is just my journey has been, I've always been interested in the environment and wilderness and nature, but it was only when I watched um, The Inconvenient Truth, you know, back in the early 2000s by Al Gore is when I realized, oh, this is really on the horizon, what we're talking mm -hmm. about here. Mm -hmm. But Dekila, what's happened now is that not only is it on the horizon, it feels like we're completely immersed mm. in a, just a, a perennial feeling of crisis that has brought about such terms as, you know, eco-anxiety or climate stress. And why this is so interesting to me is like, I think on some level, on a subtle level, we feel it all. We're all doing spiritual practice of some sort or the other to find some sense of spaciousness and peace in ourselves. Mm. And the work that you're doing actually connects those two together. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you got involved in this conservation work from a young age with your mom. Mm. And I have some other things to ask you after that. So just <laughs> give us a little story about yourself. Sure, sure. I'm so happy to. I'm so happy to be in this conversation with both of you. Um, so I always knew I was um, an environmentalist. I grew up loving wildlife. Um, my mother spent at least four years in the western part of Sikkim, which is in those days was completely forested and a little bit wild. Um, and so I grew up in what is was a completely intact ecology, right? I grew up um, sort of seeing these guys that were star studded with a very stark and obvious Milky Way. And um, I think took a lot of that for granted. I think it was hard to imagine that we would have a future where 
you know, stars themselves on the sky are now endangered, right? We're not sure if in the next 20 years we'll even be able to see stars in the sky. So I grew up in this way that I now look back and realize was um, is was already endangered in some sense. Um, but it meant that I had this deep connection with wildlife and felt a real sense of reverence and relationship with with animals, um, especially wild animals. Um, I came to the West because I was good in school, like like most of us who are in South Asia. Our parents will do anything when they realize that their student, that their their child is a good student, right? So that was kind of the energy that propelled me to come to the U.S. My aunt brought me here, um, and I entered the environmental science world. You know, ended up adopting a lot of the language and the the paradigm around environmental science. Um, but really felt what I often describe as a, a bifurcation in my identity, where I was an extremely spiritual person, the daughter of a spiritual leader, really raised um, in a way of being that was indivisible from nature and saw nature as alive, but was functioning professionally in a system that didn't value any of those things, right? And the only thing that was malu- valued was what is measurable, in quantitative ways, even if we called it qualitative data, ultimately it had to add up to something quantitative. And that bifurcation of identity was really painful for me. I was, you know, a scientist by day and a person of faith by night, a meditator by night. Um, And when I first began working with the monks and nuns in the Himalayas, it wasn't because I planned to. I was experiencing what we now know as eco-anxiety and climate distress. This is in the early to mid-2000s. Um, I did a lot of work. Um, I loved being in the field, so I'd find every excuse I could to leave the D.C. office and go out and be based in the field. Um and I was working in the Mekong region and starting to experience nightmares around the impact of climate change, but also other impacts, right? We were seeing plastic, for example, everywhere. Um, th- and realizing very slowly that the, the, that in some sense, almost in a prescient way, imagining what was coming 20 years ahead and knowing that we were not going to be able to meet that challenge, just sort of having that realistic moment where you realize what you're doing individually or even community-wide is not enough, right? Because the forces against you are just so massive. Um, and I'd spent all my time in those years in the mid 2000s, working with governments, working with corporations, working with banks, trying to convince, you know, um, everybody you can think of, government officials at the district level, why protecting the resources that we had was important, why keeping ecologies intact was important, why addressing climate change was impo- important, right? Um, and it was just such an uphill battle. In 2007, I was asked by His Holiness, the 17th Karmapa, to create environmental guidelines for the Tibetan Buddhist monasteries and nunneries that were uh, under the lineage of the Karmakagyu lineage, which he heads. Um, and I said yes, very much from that, as I described, that bifurcated person of faith. So it became an individual project for me. It was not a WWF project. It was not a conservation or climate project. Um, so I said yes and kind of sneakily, sneakily took off my leave, took my leave and went off and worked for two weeks with these senior monks and nuns. And then in the process, I started to heal. And all of a sudden, as we were debating climate change and waste and, you know, freshwater conservation and safe drinking water with these monks and nuns, it 
suddenly became really starkly obvious to me what I'd done, that I'd kind of adopted this very uncomfortable paradigm that was never mine because I needed to succeed in the world, right? In, in samsara, essentially. And so I'd adopted this. It had never sat comfortably on me. And I was so tired carrying it. I was so tired carrying these, these, you know, the, the sort of the silos that are created in science, even this idea that biodiversity sits here, climate change sits here, freshwater sits here, right? Like all of these things, not to mention that we have green issues and brown issues. So brown being people related, green being purely biodiversity, you know, ecosystem related. We do all of these things in the science world to make the world easier to understand. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that happens in trying to do that is that our paradigm does not allow for uncertainty. Our, this science paradigm does not allow us to sit comfortably with spiritual values, with intangibles, right? So what we've done is really condensed the the value around nature to be something that is definable, quantifiable, and monetary. And we've ignored everything else, which means there is no space to have a dialogue around the sacred value of nature, which I know you're also from India. Why is biodiversity, why has biodiversity survived so well and so long in South Asia, right? How is it that despite the population growth that everybody likes to cite in the West, the reality is that it's heavily populated areas that still have species. Larger, largest population of leopards in India is in Bombay, right? right. How do we make sense of all of that if we only think that the value system for nature is economic? Because there is, you cannot make that argument at all. There has to be something else, right? Um, And I think in the process of working with these monks and nuns, what ended up happening was that bifurcation went away and I became whole. And I suddenly was looking at everything I was doing and all the institutions I belong to, all the great institutions of education that I've been part of, sort of going, oh, wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> you know, I have yeah. a problem with how, how we're forming, <laughs> even the hypothesis, right, that we're making. I have a problem with this. Um, and it meant that I had to go back and study And the only way I could make sense of what I wanted to study was that I had to create a program that allowed me to go work with other faith leaders around the world. I really had to explore spiritual sources on the ground to understand, you know, what was missing and where I felt I personally had gone wrong. Um, So I'll stop there. (laughs) I don't know if if that answers your question, but I'll stop there. Well, it, it helps me understand your path. And so... I want to just ask you a couple of other questions because, you know, the feeling that I have around all of this is is an incredible disconnect, you know, of a feeling that you have inside of yourself. We're on some kind of an economic wheel that we can't seem to get off of. And how do we, how do we use our spiritual practices to develop this sense of an understanding of interdependence and interconnectivity, but to make some actual like impactful change that's going to help us possibly try to keep that temperature goal that we have, mm-hmm. you know? So in your, in your mind, like what are the, if, if you were to advise somebody, so I know in the, 
I, I was reading something that you wrote before about five different things that you like to share with people who are experiencing um, this kind of feeling. So why don't you just, let's start with that and then we can mm-hmm. go on to the next. Mm-hmm. So I think, so for, I, I think, you know, one of the things Loka is doing is looking at research around environmental emotions, right? We're carrying out this research with the Center for Healthy Minds, which houses the Loka Initiative. And there are a bunch of psychologists and neuroscientists. So thankfully we can, we can outsource some of the expertise. Um, and one of the things that's really fascinating for me is how different sub-identity groups may experience eco-anxiety and climate distress in different ways. So um, a typical example would be someone who is, has grown up with their identity being very closely tied to the land or to nature, is going to experience grief very early and very intensely, right? Um, because they, they're really mourning the loss of something that is inseparable, inseparable from them and their own identity. Um, You know, solastalgia, which was coined by Glenn Albrecht, the Australian philosopher, is a term that really works well for Indigenous folks in particular. Interestingly, it also works well for um, farmers, for rangers, for people who really spend a lot of time on the land. Mm-hmm. And what we see, what we're seeing quite commonly is that young people are experiencing anxiety in higher levels, at higher levels. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Anxiety is activating. It actually forces you to go out and do something, right? Um, it's, it's an emotion that leads to results in a way that depression, depression doesn't necessarily. So there are all of this set of emotions that are activating and a set of emotions that are actually inactivating. They paralyze you. Um, and so understanding and identifying the emotions we experience is really necessary. Um, I think the first thing I always say to people who are describing what they feel is, you know, it's valid. What we experience is completely valid. We have an existential threat that some of us are awake to that others aren't. We're completely panicking because it could be the first time we're experiencing it. It could be we suddenly realize the gravity of it. It could be that we just cannot wake anyone else up and we're the only ones awake, right? All of those scenarios are horror movie scenarios. And this is happening in real life. It makes complete sense that we're experiencing this. And so the first and most important thing is just to validate the emotions and allow ourselves respect, right? Allow ourselves honor the emotions and allow ourselves to experience that without either experiencing shame or trying to suppress them or trying to explain them away or trying to reject them, right? Um, I find that environmentalist professionals, in particular environmental professionals, really have a tendency to get angry because they don't want to waste their time having these emotions, right? Because they have too much to do. So there is this real tendency to not be compassionate to ourselves when we experience this because we're so angry. We're so hurt that we don't understand that we need to heal ourselves in the process of doing the work. Um, I, I don't remember the order, but I would say the other thing that is really important is that we build, we reinforce, we, we validate our communities. You know, we cannot do this work alone. We cannot do this work in isolation. Not only do we, in real practical terms, need community to survive what is coming, 
We need community to actually reinforce us when we're tired. We need our friends and our community to energize us when we no longer feel we have even that tiniest little bit of energy left, right? And in turn, we need to be able to offer it to people who need it when the time comes, you know? And so this, the reinforcement, being part of a movement, being part of organizations, you know, organizing ourselves as community, this is something, this is really an evolutionary skill. We've been doing this all along as our species has evolved. It's absolutely necessary for our mental and our physical well-being. Um, and I think another thing that really is helpful is just spending time contemplating our relationship with nature. And for those of us who are so privileged, it can mean that we have access to a wildlife area or a conservation area. For those of us, you know, who are near parks, that's also another form of privilege. There are so many people who don't have any of that, right? And in which case, I always say, grow something. It doesn't matter what you grow, grow something in your house, you know? And so... Um, I think any of these things, but preferably all of these things are really important for us. Um, excuse me. My spouse just came and took my dog for a walk. I love all that. <laughs> if you have pets, that is another really wonderful way of, um, I think, reminding ourselves that we are living beings in the here and now and embracing joy in the here and now. It can be really easy for those of us who experience eco-anxiety to always be ahead because we spend so much time with just looking at data projections. Um, mm-hmm. I did this. This this was what kicked off my anxiety in the mid-2000s was I spent so much time on climate, regional climate adaptation and just looking at what was coming that something just sort of eventually just snapped, you know, and then I started, it started coming on, right? The panic and the anxiety. Um, So it's really important. And this is where I think mindfulness is very, very relevant as a practice, is being mindful of what gives us joy and really allowing ourselves the freedom and immersing in it, right? Take the time and immerse ourselves in joy. Um, Something that I find very interesting in the resilience work that Loka does that um, I partly created as a reaction to how I was seeing resilience building being done in what I think of as Euro-derived spaces, you know, so white spaces, right, was that there was a real emphasis on contemplative practices, but other kinds of resilience building exercises too, a real emphasis on um, distress reduction. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, let's bring the distress down. Everybody, we're going to meditate. We're all going to say "Om." We're all going to, you know, do yoga. We're all going to do these things that bring the redu- distress down. But if you are a person of color, I think if you're BIPOC in the West, if you are from the global South, if you are any vulnerable, marginalized group, you only have so much control over distress. That is the reality. If you're a Black in America, you only have so much control over how the police treat you, right? If you're in the global South, you only have so much control over how much money is there for disaster relief, right? It, it Depending on the vulnerability of our identity, we only have so much control over distress. So for me, there's a really deliberate reason why I talk so much about joy. We have to find another means 
of increasing our resilience, something we can control. Mm -hmm. And for people of color, joy, we really activate joy. You think about how loud we are as community, you know, how much pleasure we get out of color, how much spices we like in our food. All of these are expressions of joy. And I think if we are in that vulnerable category, understanding that distress reduction is one part of it, but increasing joy is a really necessary ingredient in building resilience. What about, I, I, I'm with you on all of this, but one of the things that I experience is, okay, so once I've calmed myself down and I have some clarity of mind, what, what can I actually do that's going to help this process is, is really, and, and I think a lot of people feel it's stumped. They just really don't know where, mm-hmm. you know, like we're on this giant wheel of, of demand and supply and things that we're being fed and we feel mm-hmm. like we don't have choices to make. And mm-hmm. is there somewhere when you connect with their community, is there a way in which we can create some kind of a structure within which we can work that's supportive for mm-hmm. um, climate action and so on, like, do you feel that mm-hmm. that kind of discussion can happen, especially in different faiths? Absolutely. Um, my strategy for working with faith leaders and indigenous leaders has always been to ask what they care about the most, and then build the environmental and climate action around that. You know, um, it was really counter to how we are taught conservation strategies, which is we come with our goal, we come with our targets, and then we're trying to get everybody to buy into that, right? This is the opposite. And I really believe that if we can have these dialogues where we show the interdependence, the ecological interdependence, the the sort of the karma of climate change, right? If we can show how it has happened, what karmic actions brought us here, then one of the interesting outcomes of that is we can connect what people are already doing to environmental and climate solutions. Um, so an example of that is, you know, I work with evangelical church leaders. Um, we have a project called Creation at the Crossroads where we bring in a cohort of religious leaders. We have closed door sessions, a lot of trust building, and then we stay with them for a year. Um, my job is not to say to them, you must believe in climate science, although that is a very rich dialogue that always happens. My job is really to say, what do you do well right now? And how can we link that to environmental and climate solutions? So as it turns out, the evangelical church body is extremely generous post-disaster. So a lot of my work is to just validate that work and then to say, and hey, If we want to talk about disasters, let me tell you what's coming and how you can prepare your communities to address it. So what I'm getting at is that people don't have to pick up everything. We we want to pick up everything, but we can barely walk five steps if we do that, right? The weight of that is just going to completely paralyze our movement. So what we want very much is that people pick up the piece that they can carry the long distance. Um, and they support everybody else that's doing the other pieces. So it might be that you cannot go to every protest, but you can, you know, send $10 that way, right? It might be that you cannot 
you know, um, I'm just trying to think, put solar on your roof. But what you can do is look for utility companies that actually allow you to buy solar energy from them, right? So it really is understanding and accepting our limitations while really activating the pieces that we are not limited by, right? So if you are already a school teacher and you already feel hammered, it, we're not, or at least I'm not asking you to now become a climate scientist. What I'm asking you to do is to ex- teach the, the basics of climate science so people understand where climate change is coming from, right? Mm-hmm. What caused it in the first place? Um, I think there's also something to be said about, you know, we really are right now, the way our societies are structured, everything is so consumeristic. So there is a tendency for us to always I feel like the most common message we get from marketing campaigns is we're not enough. What we do is not enough, right? We, we're never supposed to feel complete and satisfied and content because then that meant the marketing campaign fails. <laughs> and so I think also taking a moment to think about what are the non-financially transactional relationships we have in our lives, our friends, our families, our kids, you know, our neighborhood, our community. And really reinforcing that is also a way of resisting what has caused climate change, right? So I feel like there is so much creativity, especially when we bring spiritual values into doing environmental and climate work, because we get to go within, we get to reinforce what matters to us, first of all, as spiritual practitioners, we get to reinforce practices that are non-capitalistic, right, to the core, Um and then we get to put that out in the world. Um, I have a friend who spoke at the Rita Summit, Beth Sawin, you know, she was telling me that she made this decision to um, create a commune, a farming commune with all of her friends and people who feel and agree with her. And all of them are climate and environmental scientists. And they got together and did this, right? That is spiritual practice in action. I think one of the biggest things that needs to break down is the idea that spiritual practice happens in a room that we have curated that's very beautiful and spacious or cozy and kind of, you know, special, right? I have a room like that. (laughs) I've put a lot of energy into creating that space, right? But the reality is we say spiritual practice deliberately. It's practice. We're meant to embody that practice somewhere else. And for those of us who feel that sitting in a room or sitting in the sacred space we've curated for ourselves is enough, then I really want to challenge them to say, but then why do we say practice? Why do we use that word? You know, Mm -hmm. the idea is that we actually manifest that in samsara to alleviate suffering of others, right? So in what tangible, practical way are we doing that? And if we're not doing that, then how good is your spiritual practice? I think, you know, we we really have to look at, it seems just in our actions, how is it that we're consuming? consuming? How is it that we're disposing of things? How is it that we are... um, you know, not that I know everything, but I just try to do my little bit where I can, you know, composting all my stuff so, and creating some soil on the land, yeah. growing native species to invite pollinators to come, um, you know, joining these groups, which every neighborhood has, which I didn't even know, where if you're looking for something, you can actually get it for free from somebody who yeah. doesn't want what they 
yeah. that you want that you want. Yeah. And it's a really amazing way to not be consuming and change the ways in which we consume. Because to me, you know, I, I, I see that you're also working with indigenous people here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I am all about um, li- listening to our elders and hearing their stories of what has worked for sustainability and land management in their lifetimes. But given the state of affairs now with the exploding population around the globe and the depletion of resources. In your discussions with these elders, do you see that there's a way in which we can adopt some of what they might be saying to us that could be helpful for the world at large? Mm-hmm. Definitely, yes. I feel like, um, you know, the the... First of all, I just want to say I'm just so grateful because <laughs> they've always, you know, my experience of working with Native folks in, in the United States has been just so heartwarming and welcoming. And they've really always um, allowed me to be in their space. And I'm just so grateful for that. Um, I think this concept that they have of kinship is the closest thing I the closest an English word I can find to what I grew up with, right? Which is the sense that we are actually part of a larger family, we as humans and other other non-human living beings, right? Um, and, uh, you know, there, for example, in Sikkim, um, a friend of mine recently reminded me that when we were growing up, we could never say dom for bear. We had to say akudom. So dom is the is the Bhutia word or the Tibetan word for bear. Akudom is uncle bear, right? <laughs> so it's sort of it it goes to that level, you know. Yeah. Um and I I feel like this concept of kinship is so important and beautiful because it talks about ecosystem relationships and services in a way that I think all of us can emotionally grasp. We get it immediately the moment we say we are in kinship, right? We we get the emotion of love and compassion and interdependence. Um, so I think this is a concept that really isn't so needed. Um, there are so many people, you know, that fixate on one kind of environmental problem while ignoring another. And so I really want to point out that it's been very convenient for a lot of white, wealthy folks in the global north to blame population growth as the problem, right? And never talk about just the consumer footprint the global north has. Mm -hmm. The reason why climate change has happened is because the global north has been just emitting carbon for a century, right? And taking all the resources from the global south. Um, And so... I think one of the things we have to do and that I've learned through my work with indigenous elders is to consider every aspect of the living world and not just the lens that we are seeing the world through. And so when you put yourself, for example, you know, in through a perspective of a bear, what does the world look like? What does the bear need to thrive and survive? I know you with all the work you supported on tiger conservation, right? What does the tiger need to survive and thrive? Well, they need a completely intact forest. You know, it's not just prey in a zoo. They need the forest to be thriving, right? They need a certain, tigers won't even go through a wildlife corridor unless there is a certain amount of forested space on both sides. 
they need that sense of space for them to feel safe and for them to roam safely from one protected area to another. And so if we fixate on a solution that essentially says, okay, we're putting them in zoos, that's how they're going to thrive. Well, they're not thriving. They'll survive, but they won't thrive. And so I think this idea, the kinship idea allows us to visualize other living beings and imagine other living beings to have perspectives that are as important as our own. So when we think about human flourishing and human thriving, well, take a moment and think about tigers thriving and tigers flourishing and what that means, right? That means we are going to have to keep a certain amount of wilderness intact for them. We can manage the wilderness. I know indigenous people have been doing it for, you know, time, thousands of years. It's not, we're not saying there isn't a place for humans in the wilderness area, but that essentially we're creating it so all living beings thrive. I think all of these perspectives have um, been proven to be right through the centuries. And in many ways, biodiversity conservation has had to come full circle around to say people do belong in nature. People have been managing nature and they've been managing it right for all other living living beings. Um, and so I feel like there is a real strong connection in conservation to understanding why land back as a movement matters and allowing indigenous peoples to have their rights and to manage lands matter. You know, in the last few years, there's been this real uproar because there was a study that showed that most of the biodiversity in the world right now are better managed in indigenous managed lands than in protected areas. And a lot of conservationists were really upset about it. But that is really telling, isn't it? That we have created these systems, we've designated protection status for them, but we actually haven't figured out how to live with other living beings, right? Our way of protecting them is to keep them aside, you know, is to kind of barricade them away from us, as opposed to figuring out how do we live in kinship, right? So I think this term of kinship really is, is a new paradigm for those of us who've been raised in this Euro-derived science world, right? How do we question what we were taught as good environmental, good climate, good conservation strategy? Right. I'm with there. you on that. I just feel like we've kind of re we've kind of tipped over onto the side where unless we actually really try to set aside, I'm not saying this is the solution for everything, but set aside land for natural habitat and wildlife. We've forgotten, we've forgotten how to actually live with wildlife. So we have to relearn that. But until mm -hmm. we do, we have to give them that space to do. And, you know, as you know, in India, uh, in most of these wildlife areas, you have people living right up against mm -hmm. against the wildlife areas and there's a lot of conflict with their mm -hmm. cattle and crops mm -hmm. and, and various things but that's another conversation <laughs> mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. allegra do you want to talk to her about um about your question about practice one of the things we were thinking about dikula is um you know and we talked a little bit about practice and um ways that that helps us as practitioners working with earth, um, whether we're like directly engaged in environmental service or maybe a little bit of a distance and thinking about how can we connect. Um, and the practice of climate Tonglen that you've written about and that's um, you know featured on, on, on the web. Um, and 
we were curious if you could lead us a little bit in that practice and, and invite people into that, how um, they can connect, how we can connect with compassion for the earth right here where we are. Mm. Um, right now? Sure, if you're up for it. A short mm-hmm. one. Okay. All right. Um, we can do a quick one. Um, so I guess, so the first thing is to ground ourselves. So let's start there. Um, and let's take a second to just place our awareness where we are connected to the earth. So for me, because I'm standing, (laughs) it's my feet, right? I'm connected. Um, I am on the second floor of a house, but through the foundation of this house, I'm connected to the earth. For some of you, it's going to be the seat of your pants. Some of you might have your hands down. Just take our awareness. um, Collectively, let's take our awareness and just place it where we feel connected to the earth. And just allow our awareness to sink down and sink into the topsoil of this beautiful planet. And imagine that our awareness is just expanding to acknowledge all the other life forms that are also taking sustenance from the ground, from that very topsoil. Can be earthworms and rabbits and fishes and birds, tigers. The earth gives life to all of us unconditionally without preference. And we get to compete and participate and cooperate with one another, right? But the earth holds all of us. And just let that awareness expand all the way to all around this planet and circle it. All the oceans and the orcas, right? The black-necked cranes and the elephants and us humans, all of us are interconnected. The oxygen we breathe comes from all the phytoplankton in the ocean and the lakes, the plants in our house. We're effortlessly engaging in kinship. We're effortlessly engaging in relationship with one another, giving and taking. Find your joy in that. That there are just millions of life forms, millions of species that are interacting in this give and take. 
surviving and thriving. It's a good moment to think about a place or a species that you especially like or that just pops into your mind maybe. And all of the relationships that are intact now, right, that are still thriving now, that still continue. I think acknowledging that and finding joy in that is necessary. If there is pain, you acknowledge it. If there is grief, you acknowledge it. If there is anger, you acknowledge it. The trick is not to get, what's the word I want? Not to get overtaken by your emotions, right? So you acknowledge and you let go. When we imagine something we love is harmed, it's really easy to be overtaken by that fear and the anger that comes from it, comes from fear. But if you see your emotions are coming as a coping method, right, then you honor the coping method and you let it go. Because what you are here to do is to witness the joy that we have in these relationships and allow that joy to sustain you. And so as you bring, start contracting your awareness back into yourself and into your body, you can offer the joy to the planet, to the topsoil, to the earthworms, and then sort of maybe allow yourself to keep the strength the practice has given you, right? So as you contract, you offer joy. You offer commitment. And you bring back strength and courage. And so from wherever you're touching the earth, that strength and courage is entering you. And you can hold on to that. It's important we remember that we're in a marathon. (laughs) We have a long ways to go. We need the strength and courage. And that is what the earth offers us so generously and unconditionally. So I want to ask you one last thing. I know we have just a couple minutes left. Um, you mentioned in something that I read that you wrote that your favorite prayer since you were young is the Heart Sutra. Mm-hmm. Is there any line or two you could chant for us that you remember? Uh, sure. 
I'll just start right in the middle because it's when I was a kid, this was always the part that we got to shout. <laughs> so I'll, I'll chant that part. Yeah. So it's So this particular stanza is really where you dissolve your sense of self. And it starts with all the senses that we have, right? And it sort of really gets into breaking down how none of this exists independently, you know, and that all of this is emptiness. And so it's this very descriptive way of breaking down every attribute that we have that defines ourselves. Um, and I think for me, one of the most interesting things about how Buddhism was taught in the West for me was that how counter it was to how I was taught Buddhism as a child. Um, and one of the ways that I think is really, really different, starkly different, is that here when emptiness is taught, it's really taught as the negation of all things. And the way I was taught emptiness as a child is that it's just the negation of self. It's the everythingness of everything, right? So this, instead of it being frightening and terrifying, it really is that you allow your sense of self to dissolve so all other things can come in and be important along with you. And I think if there is any ecological principle that captures, you know, ecosystem relationships or ecology or or from the indigenous point of view here in North America, kinship, right? It's this idea that everythingness of everything gets to thrive along with us, that that is the heart of ecology. Um, and so I think that's a good place to end with. <laughs> can you just tell us in five seconds where people can find out about the work that you're doing? Uh, we are called Loka Initiative, um, and uh, it's, I think, lokainitiative.org is the shorthand. Um, we are on social media. You can find me on social media, sadly, although I have fasting, social media fast days. <laughs> um, and um, where else? I, I think that's a good place to start. <laughs> okay, well, I'll definitely add it in the text later. And you do have a good social media page because they're always inspiring. Thank you so much. It's <laughs> lovely to be in this conversation. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Thank you, Dekila and Allegra. Bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient flexible and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.